This programme was first broadcast on Otago Access Radio and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. You make a nest. You make a nest to protect yourself from the world. When your world is a small city, you need a nest high above, close to the sun that no one can see into. So that when you see someone from your past who makes your heart and head pound and your throat restrict, you know that you're safe, high above it all. The town belt in Dunedin is the lungs of the city and it's also a nest for hiding, for camouflaging. Camouflaging yourself and stories about yourself and your family. I must confess, I wanted Lisa to be dead. Not because she deserves to be dead, but because she doesn't deserve a life lived in camouflage. You don't see me, but I see you. I am Louise Hepburn, an invisible woman in the Edinburgh of the South. You shun the watchers until you need to break open our memory banks. This is a story about my Dunedin, Ortipoti, the place of the steep points at the bottom of the world. Someone else would tell the story differently, but this is my story. Hell breathes as heaven looks on. It's Tuesday, Waitangi Day, our national domestic day. Like a family, the country celebrates and simultaneously reopens wounds. This is the day that earned us the long weekend, but we're not sure we deserve it. I've woken to a Sirocco wind. It's shredding the garden and my nerves. Branches in the town belt are battering each other. A patina of dust has developed on every surface in my house, blowing in through cracks and crevices. I've already had to secure my back gate twice. At 4am this morning and then again at 9. The second time, I discovered a dead kereru on the path behind my property. It's not uncommon to find them on the road because they're sometimes hit by cars when flying low but there shouldn't be one on the path. A sign that things are off, out of whack. Makutu. I phoned my friend Gavin and told him I need a lock for the gate. Today. Now. I'm guarding that entrance. No more will I be approached from behind without my knowledge. With that decision in place, I lock my house and make my way on foot to visit my great-aunt Fenella. Fenella was a music teacher who's now lost most of his sight but can hear a pin drop and smell out any rat within a one-mile radius. She's our Theresius, the blind prophet of the family who shine the sharpest light. For the last 20 years she's lived here, in a rest home behind Highgate, the main Māori Hill drag. Although I inherited most of her furniture, she's created a miniature of her former home in her room. 
It's an art nouveau enclave that resists residential and clinical conformity. Peacock blues and greens against beige alarm cords and metal walking frames. Her kimonos and headscarves are vibrant reprieve from the terry robes and sheepskin slippers donned by other residents. I make the trip to see Fenella about once a fortnight, and usually my visit begins with a peacemaking mission between her and staff, residents or visitors in the public living area. Last time was a disagreement over radio stations. Fenella called two ladies imbeciles and an insult to the advancement of their gender for listening to talkback. She said she hadn't avoided marriage and child-wearing to have to listen to parochial middle-aged men pontificating about the dress and conduct of women. Today, all is calm. Fenella isn't in the living area where she usually holds court, but in her room with Matthew. The door is ajar and I approach stealthily to catch the tail of their conversation. Standing up for oneself or calling out bigotry and others' bad behaviour is not for the faint-hearted Matthew. I do it because being an outcast has never concerned me. Toby's already an outcast, Auntie Finn. And it's not because he's standing up for anything. He's making it worse. You need to decide if you can do more alongside him or from where you are, apart. Outcast myself also? No. The offer to speak to your mother and father still stands. Can't see the point. Look, think on it. I'm here. I'm still alive. This I can do. Thanks, Auntie Finn. Hey, you listening? I just got here. Morning, Finn. Don't stand there with the door wide open, Louise. It encourages the uninvited. I'll be off. All right, dear. Call if you change your mind. Okay. And dear? Yeah? Be a sport and tell Mrs Simpson down the hall as you pass that there's a reek coming from her room and she needs to give herself an airing. (laughs) Which one's Mrs Simpson? The one at the end who wears synthetic leisure suits. (laughs) I suspect that's what's contributing to the reek. Really? Mm, Track suits are fiendishly foul. Maybe... You could take her along as a water boy on one of your regattas and drop her in the lake. <laughs> I'll ask coach. Ha! Good boy. <laughs> Weight of the world he has. Who? Matt. This is not a time to be alive, as the young say. It's not like you to pander to schoolboy angst. Matt's got the best of everything. No, I don't deny that he appears to. As do you. Clothed, housed, fed, good health, friends... So what are we to worry about, hmm? Fenella's room is dim, with the blinds drawn halfway to protect the furnishings, and there's the miasma of Chanel Number no. 5 permeating everything, the smell tangling with alcohol wipes and medicated wash, unctions to sterilise, soothe and sedate. Louise, are you listening? I asked you a question about your nephew. You did? It's a worry. I wouldn't know. He doesn't talk to me. Have you asked yourself why? We're different people. Different interests, different concerns. He's your nephew. So is Toby. Ah, you and Toby are more alike, so you pay him more attention. Nope, that's simplistic. And I didn't come up here to be (laughs) criticised. 
When was the last time you saw Richard? Oh, don't be a child, Louise. This isn't point scoring. You were just point scoring about my nephews. Richard dropped me off a bottle of gin last Thursday, if you must know. It's the least I can bloody do. And now I want to talk to you about the least you can bloody do. I beg your pardon. Sit down. I don't sit on command. I'm not a dog. No, but you're being a little bitch. Right. That's it. I'm off. Oh, sit, sit down. Lou, please. I'm sorry. Would you please sit down? I need to talk to you. Your mother forbade your father from hanging his paintings in the house after 1972. I know the story. He'd seen some Rothkos in the States. He was inspired, but Mum said Dad's attempts made her feel like she was surrounded by mortuary slabs. I know this. You know that version of the story. There's a more accurate version, which I can attest to because I was there and I've also seen real Rothkos. The other version is that Antony's paintings were merely bad. Stating that they resembled mortuary slabs would imply that they'd previously had some lively merit. And that was not the case. Wow, that's harsh. But not untrue. He might have been more successful if Mum hadn't shut him down so quickly, if she'd let him keep going, keep trying. Maybe. Or maybe he adjusted her critique to afford it a total authority so that he could believe he could never paint again. He chose to believe that he wasn't permitted to keep paintings or hang his pictures. I don't think that was You how... don't think or you don't want to believe. I don't think your assessment is very fair. What's fair got to do with it? It's another perspective. Now, when you draw, you know to examine your subject from different angles, hmm? Very distance and height. Before you were saying that Dad's painting was just plain bad. Well, he made a bad attempt. And it sounded like you were defending my mother. I maintain a healthy perspective of your mother. Her practised phrases and polished intonation never entirely disguised her true behaviour. Maid Marion, who let that tomcat poet snake his way into her garden... Her side of her suit rump. Baxter. Mum and James K. Baxter. Behind the azaleas. I'd slipped out for a cigarette, not sure who was more disturbed. Jesus. She had very good posture, your mother, which lent itself well to upright dalliances. To Dad know? I suspect so. It was likely what set him off on the angry art path. Well, what's this got to do with Matthew? If Marion had been more supportive of your father and not rumped and pumped around on him behind his back, maybe he would have been a better painter, been more honest with himself about his abilities and would have had a more successful law practice. He was Queen's Counsel. That's a title, not representative of the day-to-day -day realities. The machinations of caseloads and keeping a practice afloat. Finn, what's this got to do with Matt? You've got too used to your own style. Seeing things through your own lens. And you don't see that boy clearly. Uh, are you accusing me of something? I helped you. Now you help Matthew. That was different. That was very Different. A different time. It's all in the same web. 
recurring patterns, which on the surface can seem harmless enough. Just because people don't walk around black, blue and bleeding doesn't mean they're not damaged. Off balance. I know this. Do you? You're aware of others? Yes. Oh, so you know that when you can, you must help others. I could help you. I could pander to your angst, as you put it. I could see that you didn't want your father or brother to know what happened to you. And telling your mother was unthinkable. But I also knew that if you didn't have support, the support that you needed, then you'd get caught in a very nasty den of your own demons. And we might not be sitting across from each other today. If anyone needs help, it's Toby. Stop everyone picking on him, labelling him like an oddball or outcast, perv, you know, whatever. Matt has been helping Toby, and that is where you come in. The golden boy has been helping his weirdo, freak, younger brother. Give me a break. He hasn't had a choice. The boy is bullied by everyone around him. That's because people expect him to be someone he's not. They're all afraid of different. Everyone's afraid of the wrong thing. The wrong thing? Yes. I'm talking about Matt, not Toby. What? The boy's bullied by everyone around him. Start again. I'm lost. Oh, difficult to see, isn't it? You have to really step back and take it all in. Matt's being bullied. Hmm. From his peers, thanks to Toby's shenanigans, and from his parents' demands that he be the golden boy. And he knows that you don't like him. So all in all, the kid doesn't get many breaks. Well, why is he worried about what I think? What anyone thinks he should lighten up. Oh, should he, Louise? Is that what you would say to him? Lighten up, Matthew. Keep up the good face. Keep on keeping on. It sounds like something your mother would say. That boy is run ragged trying to keep everything in his life together. And he is at his wit's end trying to sort out his brother. Toby doesn't need sorting out. He needs to be left to himself. He's just different. Is he different? Look again. Look closely. Listen. Listen very carefully. Matthew needs you too. He really does. Talk to him. Denial has an unacknowledged currency that has good returns for some, but not for others. Thirty years ago, Fenella knew I could survive if I could live a certain version of denial. Now she's showing me what denial is doing to Matthew. What I thought was arrogance was exhaustion at being alone and ostracised when he was meant to be playing the most popular boy at school. His divided self is tearing him and his world apart. Sarah? Where are you? I'm walking home from seeing Auntie Finn. I'm about five minutes away. Have you seen Toby today? No. Why? He and Richard had a fight and Toby left. He'll come back when he's hungry. This was yesterday afternoon. Yesterday? Monday? That's what I said. Is he with friends? Friends? If there is, they're not friends I know. Does Matt know? He's not saying anything. He's gone silent on me. Is he there? 
He's taking Gracie for a run. Look, Lou, I really need to find Toby. The police have been here again. What? Why? They think they were asking about that girl and if Toby knew her. The girl in the park? Lisa Grady? Yeah. Was Toby with you on Saturday night? What? What do you mean? Did he go with you to the regatta? Look, I don't want to make anything more of this than it is. Was he with you or not? And if he wasn't, why wasn't he? I can't explain now. I have to go. Rich is in a right state. Toby. Lisa Grady. Toby. Damn you, Gavin. Why did you have to be so bloody efficient? I need to get in this gate. What's the point of a new lock if I don't have the key? What are you staring at? Mind your own business, you bloody nosy... Miss Hepburn, it's Sergeant Thompson. What do you want? Are you at home? I'm locked out my back gate, thanks to you. Me? How? My friend put a lock on it for me this morning because you said I had to. The key must be in the house. So you don't know if your nephew Toby is at your house? I can't see from here. I have to walk down the lane and back up the road to get in my front gate. I need you to do something for me. Why? I need you to text me at this number if Toby is at your house. Don't call, just text me the word yes or the letter Y. Don't tell him anything, just keep him there. Can you do that? Of course I can do that. I'm not an idiot. But why would I do that? Because if you don't, you would be interfering with an investigation in such a way that could have serious consequences. Lisa Grady is out of her coma and she's talking. We need you to cooperate. Understand? I said I'm not an idiot. On the third day, she rose again. We judge the living and look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. All things visible and invisible. Lisa Grady has risen again. There is no hiding her story now and its whole tangled web. Conservatism makes us hide the hard, ugly facts, but it doesn't make us more conservative. In any nest, the contamination is often within. You have to let in the air. After Sergeant Thompson's call, I walked down the lane, but instead of turning back up the road home, I kept walking down into the town belt. And as I go deeper, the picture of my younger nephew grows clearer. What was dappled before in shadow is now in stark relief. The boy who was bullied for being an outcast and a perv is an Ouroboros who feeds on himself. He feeds and inflates the impression that others have of him. Like any young person, he plays off what he can keep to himself against what others take from him. Odd boys can go deeper into themselves like a self-consuming worm, or they can turn into a snake that survives by lashing out. In our family, we've kept a lid on the boiling cauldron of secrets. My mother's infidelity, my father's, my brother's and my spending. The three minutes when I was the same age as Lisa when I could draw no air because a young man had pushed me against a tree in a park with his hands around my throat. Occasionally the heat in the family cauldron gets too hot, usually when we're drinking and voices are raised. Fortunately, Sarah's a good cook and can turn down the heat and place a lid over the boil and trouble. 
Matt and Toby have seen this many times over the years. It's their heritage. Errant adults pretending to be civilised. Divided personalities acting one way at home and another out in the world. Different perspectives depending on where you stand. I've called Matt. The police will have a record of this and that will be my consequence. But this story becomes Matt's now and Toby's and Lisa's. The consequences for me are immaterial because they are the next life of this city and its town belt. Matt and Gracie are striding around the bend in the road, running to the rescue. Gracie is excited for the hunt. It's a game to her and she doesn't understand its gravity. She doesn't understand that the other lad she lives with, that he snuggles with her to muffle out the taunts and gross challenges set by his peers, that he's got himself trapped in their web. Gracie doesn't understand why Toby feels banished from the same people who feed and water her and scratch behind her ears, her family and his. She doesn't understand why he wouldn't leap at the chance of a car journey in their company to watch his brother compete in a rowing race and then plunge into the lake in celebration. Gracie doesn't understand why a boy would choose to spend the night in the bush only 200 metres from his house in his own lonely and dark company. A Saturday night when thunder and rain lashed for two brutal hours with only trees and a sleeping bag for cover. Gracie doesn't understand the premeditation of one desperate and rejected adolescent heeding the jeers of thugs so that he hunts down another desperate and rejected adolescent and holds her down and violates her already existent pain chokes her in an attempt to snuff out the event and then thwack her with a branch for good measure. Gracie doesn't understand why her family doesn't comfort Toby and she doesn't understand why the parents can't read the pain of their other son either. That Matthew carries a weight that denies him the joy of any moment in the present while his life hurtles forward in increasing intensity. She doesn't understand, but by telling you this, I'm trying to, drawing the parts and threads together to stitch the whole, cogent, comprehensible. Matthew and Gracie join me on the ridge of the road. It doesn't matter how much sound they make because Toby, under the trees, has tuned us out. He's made his own nest. I point in the direction of the red sleeping bag for Matt, but Gracie is already off. She's hunted out the spot before. On Saturday night, I wouldn't let her off her lead. But today, 11.20am on Waitangi Day, she bursts through the bushes and down the bank to greet her other boy. Toby turns his face to hers, lets her lick the mud and salt water off his cheeks. He doesn't look at us, at Matt and me above. Matt crouches beside me and grips the grass at his feet. He's hanging on to whatever remnants of his life and family before this still exist. Matt's wearing a school athletic shirt that bears the surname along the lower back. Hepburn. It's of Scottish origin and means high burial ground. Matthew Hepburn. Son of Richard and Sarah. 
grandson of Marion and Anthony, QC, nephew of Invisible Louise, whose caricatures are published under a pseudonym all over the world, brother of Toby, whose name will be suppressed for now. But Hepburn is clearly identifiable in this small town and Matthew's given himself over to whatever comes ahead. Light from light, we judge both the living and the dead and we believe in the remission of sins. Hell breathes. Heaven looks on. I text yes to Sergeant Thompson and let the location devices on my phone do the rest. Dark Dunedin was produced by Prospect Park New Zealand in Otipoti, the Edinburgh of the South, at Otago Access Radio. All episodes are written and directed by Emily Duncan and produced by H.J. Kilkelly. Dominic Angelo Lololi is the technician, and original music is by Marama Grant. The actors in this episode are... Julie Edwards as Louise Hepburn, Terry McTavish as Great Aunt Fenella, Robert Shand as Matthew, Marama Grant as Sarah, and Mark Nielsen as Sergeant Thompson. Dark Dunedin was produced with support from Creative Communities Dunedin, Dunedin Fringe Festival, the New Athenaeum Theatre, Olveston Historic Home, Archive Birds New Zealand, and Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature. This programme was first broadcast on Otago Access Radio and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.